you have your Bibles, you're in the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Last week we studied the beginning of this chapter. Today we, by God's grace, will conclude this chapter. As we've been going through this book, this book divides in half. Not quite in equal halves, but it's an epistle. So you have a doctrine section, you have an application section. What's unique about Revelation is the application comes first, the doctrine comes second. What's unique about the doctrine is that it's not the doctrine of past things, it's the doctrine of future things. Just as it is certain that Christ died and rose, so it is equally certain that one day Christ will come and heaven's kingdom will take over earth's kingdom, and it will be the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That is future, yet it is just as sure. We take what God says in his word by faith, whether it's something of the past or something of the future. Indeed, to the Lord, it's all sure. He's established it from the beginning. It's all something that we should trust. So what we have is these sections of the book. We have closed the major portion when it comes to the judgment in chapters 4 through 16. We're now in the last portion, chapters 17 through 22. And in this last portion, I told you last week and the weeks previous that the book closes with two cities. You remember them, young people? What's the name of one of them? Elijah? Babylon. What's the other one? Yes. Jerusalem. Very good. And as I said before, we have two options, but what God so graciously does is He shows you them, and He wants you to choose one. He wants you to choose Jerusalem. He wants you to come out of Babylon. Of course, that's not to say to these churches that they lived in Babylon locationally. They lived in Ephesus and Philadelphia and all those cities. That's where they lived. But there's an aspect of Babylon that is in every city. And God calls His people out of Babylon. He calls them to Himself because those who are part of Jerusalem are those who are joined to Jesus Christ. So this is the end portion of the book. It's trying to make sure that we get the point. So we have given to us in chapter 17, chapter 18, this city Babylon. And we have the fact that she will be judged. That's what we studied last week. And we studied quite specifically that the judgment of Babylon is just. It is just. Young people, we need to talk about what it means to judge something justly. When we think of economics, Proverbs tells us that a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You have the scales, and the amount on one side was supposed to equal the amount on the other side. Your pound on one side needs to be equal to the pound on the other side so that the scales are matched. And God says, unequal measures, that's no good. Things need to be just. And outside of simply going to the store and giving the right amount for the, for the product, God has told us we're supposed to give Him glory with our lives. That's the standard. I've created you for my glory. When people fall short of that glory, God is just to judge. So as we looked at Revelation 17, we see the wickedness of Babylon. So Jesus Christ is just to judge her. Jesus not, Christ is not an unjust ruler. 
He's not unjust in justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. He is just. We know that in particular because of what we heard about him in chapter 16. Heaven tells us and sings in verses 5, 6, 7. It says this, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So given that, we come to the beginning of 17 and we learn about Jesus Christ. This is who he is. He is a God of justice. How is he going to bring about the, this just judgment upon Babylon? Chapter 18, verse 8, it's on the front of your bulletin today. Mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider the mighty judgment of Babylon. Father, help us as we get a chance to look at your word again today. May we not become lethargic or apathetic towards it, as we perhaps are even reminded of things we might already know. May we, may we have the benefit of looking at it again and perhaps admiring it more than we have previously. Lord, as this passage upholds Christ, we pray that he would be upheld before our eyes today. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Whether it's a train on a collision course or a plane that's going down, Superman is always ready to save the day. As was said, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. Yes, it's Superman. And that comic superstar is is someone that's loved by all. And certainly it's because Superman is an emblem of power for good. We live in a world that's not so good. We often wish that things were different. We often wish that there was someone who could make them better. We looked at Revelation 17. We saw a picture of what wasn't very good. We saw a picture of a woman who's seated on a beast who's holding a golden cup, and she had an alluring appearance, but she was abominable. As we studied through that first portion of chapter 17, we felt dirty. I mean, there were terms like harlot, immorality, drunkenness, abominations, impurity, blood. That's kind of how he felt. And notice how John responds in verse 6. He marvels. That's not to say he's admiring this. This is dreadful. Why is it so dreadful to John? You may say, well, it's just a wicked picture. Well, yes, it is. Absolutely. It is a picture of wickedness. But as we look at the picture again, we realize that this woman is ancient. Babylon, the mother of harlots. She's ancient. She goes back in time. She's influential. It talks about her influence on the kings and the earth dwellers all everywhere. And she's dangerous. She takes the life of the saints. She's not just wicked. She is very powerful. She reaches around the globe and back through time. And it's no wonder that John marveled at her. What we need to be sure of this morning is that there is one who is more powerful than Babylon, and it's Jesus Christ who judges her. Say, why should we focus on the power of Jesus Christ as we look at the rest of Revelation 17? 
The reason, I believe, is because of what heaven says about this event. Just a moment ago, we went back to chapter 16, verses 5 and 7, where heaven talked about the justice of Jesus Christ, and then we saw the wickedness of Babylon. Therefore, we learn that Jesus Christ is just to judge her. Christ is just to judge her. And then we move on to chapter 18, and then heaven is going to talk about Babylon again. And it's going to talk about Christ again and about his power. So if you turn forward to chapter 18, verses 4 and 8, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So I believe what we're going to find at the end of chapter 17 is a wonderful display of the power of Jesus Christ. That Christ is able to judge Babylon. Verses 6 through 18, that's our second point from this chapter. Last week we learned the first, that he is just. Today we learn that he is able. He will carry out his judgment. As we go through this, we see an angel is going to explain what has been seen. And as we look at this, we see how Christ is going to achieve Babylon's fall. And it's really amazing. Christ will direct evil against evil, and he will direct evil to its end. In the first paragraph, we'll see that the beast is defeated, verses 6 through 14. In the second paragraph, we'll see that Babylon will fall, verses 15 through 18. So those are the two points today, two simple points. But before we go into those, I want you to get a very good picture of verses 1 through 3 locked in your mind. Young people, think about this picture with me for a moment. This passage, according to the angel and what she said to John, is about the judgment of the harlot, verse 1. It's all about judgment. Who is that one? She is named in verse 5 as Babylon. So this is about the judgment of Babylon. The other thing I want you to realize is that she influences and intoxicates people, the kings of the earth and the dwellers on earth, the woman and those she influences. Last, I want you to see the one that she rides in verse 3. She rides a beast. So have a clear picture in your mind of a woman sitting on a beast who influences people great and small. That's what we're going to talk about. Because that picture that's been displayed for us is going to unravel. And the angel is going to explain how Christ is going to bring judgment upon her. And as we see this unravel, we're going to see the power of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 and 7. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. This is kind of a topic sentence, and that rest of the paragraph is going to talk about the beast, and then the next paragraph is going to talk about Babylon. Point A today, the beast will be defeated. The beast is going to be defeated. And we know who this beast is because of parallels in Revelation 11 and 13. This is the Antichrist. And I want you to notice, how is it going to end for the Antichrist? What's going to happen to the beast? Look at verse 8 and verse 11. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and goes to destruction. That's how it's going to end. Look at verse 11. 
And for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So very plainly, the beast that carries Babylon will go to destruction. Against the, uh, the picture of a woman on top of a beast is this statement, that beast will be destroyed. Well, how's that going to happen? Verses 6 through 8 tell us that the earth dwellers are going to follow the beast. Look at verse 8. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. That picture I told you about the woman seated on top of the beast holding out the golden cup to people great and small, that's beginning to unravel here. Those earth dwellers, those who are unwritten in the book of life from the foundation of the world, those who are intoxicated with the woman, they now marvel at the beast. They will all worship the beast who was slain to death. I need you all to turn back five chapters to chapter, four chapters to chapter 13. Because this is where we see the beast already in the book of Revelation in a very similar word. So look in your Bibles at Revelation 13, 8. It says, all who dwell on earth will worship it, will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You remember as we studied through chapter 13 why it was that everyone except the saints worshipped the beast? Because there was a very specific event that took place that when it happened, Everyone became a follower and a worshiper of the beast. You see it in verse 3 and several times through the chapter, but the beast is assassinated. He is wounded to death, as it says in the King James. And then it goes on to say that he came back to life. So the point is this. When the world sees the Antichrist defeat death, they're going to worship him. Say That's That's impressive. It is, but it's nothing for us to fear because God is ultimately behind that. Look at verse 7 of chapter 13. Authority was given. That's another one of those divine passives. God is in this. Authority is given to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. And it's as this event takes place and the people on earth become worshipers of the beast that this whole picture of chapter 17 begins to unravel. Those who are intoxicated with Babylon, they're drunk with a couple of abominations. Now they marvel at the beast and they worship the beast. There's a shift going on for people all around the world shifting to the beast. That's the first part of how the beast will be defeated. The second part is in verses 9 through 14 because the kings of the earth are going to join themselves to this beast. And just as a warning, as a disclaimer, this is where things get kind of complex. But we can do it. Here we go. Verse 9 and 10. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads. Remember the beast had seven heads. The seven heads are seven mountains. Which given what it says in Daniel 2 and Jeremiah 51, I would understand that to be kingdoms. Mountains can refer to kingdoms. There are seven mountains kingdoms on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. That fits together quite nicely. They are seven kings. Seven heads are seven mountains, seven kings. 
And then we need to understand something about those seven kings. Five of them have fallen. One is, that's presently, and the other has not yet come, that's future. When he does come, he must remain only a little while. So verses 9 and 10 show us the seven heads of the beast represent a succession of kings or kingdoms. And I say kings or kingdoms because the beast is a very complex character. I say that because the beast has seven heads, has ten horns. I mean, this is not a, a, a really simple creature. This is complex. And at times when we read about this beast, it sounds like he's an empire that stretches back in time. Empires that have fallen, empires that are, empires that will come. But at other times, it sounds like this is an empire's king. It's an individual. It's someone who could be mortally wounded with the sword, Revelation 13. So this beast is very complex. He's future. He's not yet come. He's past. Five have already fallen. He rises from the pit. And that pit is where uh, demons are kept and bound. So there's, there's a demonic aspect to him. So the, the beast is complex, pointing backwards and forwards in time and downwards to the abyss. This is something pretty complex. Now, Daniel the prophet talked about many kingdoms and the fact that kingdom after kingdom after kingdom would come, would rise and fall, and in the end, Christ would replace all the kingdoms of the world and never be himself replaced. So these seven kingdoms could be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. That would be during John's time. And then there yet remains one to come. Whatever they may be, what we know from the text, what we absolutely know, is that they are temporary. They'll only be there for a little bit. But Christ's kingdom is permanent. So we look at verse 11, and we see the beast's relation to those seven kings, kingdoms. His relation is this. Verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So when we just said the seven heads are seven kings, kingdoms, it says that the beast is one of those. He belongs to the seventh, but he's part of the eighth. How can that be? How can you be seven and eight? It's possible that the individual Antichrist will gain political power as part of the seventh empire. He will be slain to death, rise again, having been indwelt by a demon who's been loosed from the abyss. So he's seventh. Having risen again, he's eight after the seventh. But what we must learn from this is that all human rulers rise and fall. And that will be true for the Antichrist that everyone is going to worship as well. If you think about this from from a standpoint of those who will live through it, this must be a devastating time. Everyone is going to worship this beast. But even he will fall. His kingdom is not going to last. It says he's going to destruction. And we all want to know, how is that going to happen? How is the beast going to be destroyed? Look at verses 12 and 13. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings, which have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So ten horns 
are the ten kings who will rise in the future to join the beast. And since it's for one hour, this is going to be a very short-lived alliance that is going to be formed at the end. But the, earth, the kings of the earth, those who, once involved, who were once involved with the harlot Babylon, they are going to join themselves to the beast. They're going to receive power and authority. And when you hear those words, you should always think, where does all power and authority come from? Romans 13, all authority comes from God. So we shouldn't worry about this because these are going to receive power and join the beast and they are going to join for a futile purpose. Look at verse 14. This is the most explosive verse in the entire chapter. Verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. Some of us older folks can remember when we were younger that sometimes we got with our friends and did things that we shouldn't have done. They weren't very smart, but we just thought we'd try. Well, when these kings joined together with the beast to fight the lamb, not very smart. That is an impossible battle. You know, the lamb has been hurling down judgments upon the earth, and those on the earth have been trying to get under the rocks and the mountains and hide themselves from the wrath of the lamb. They've been cursing God, and then they're going to turn and fight him? We don't get any details here, but what we learned in the the bold judgments is that the Euphrates River is dried up so that all the kings of the earth with their armies can gather to Armageddon. Then we learn what happens there at Armageddon in chapter 19, where we have both the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies. They're going to be conquered. But I want you to understand what is happening in this story. Because it is really glorious. By giving authority to the Antichrist, the kings turn to him. They turn away from Babylon to the beast. And they gather into one place to make war on the lamb. God is orchestrating that. And then the lamb conquers them. You say, what, what is God doing? You've been there before. You have a hornet's nest on your house. You get the hornet spray out, you read the back, and it says, when you use this, please stand a good distance away. It also tells you, make sure to use this product in the late evening or early morning. Why is that? Because hornets go to bed at night. They work in the day. The point is, you want to be able to get rid of all the hornets. So you wait to a time when they're all together. So Christ has orchestrated end-time events. So all who oppose him gather in one spot. He takes them out. That is pretty good. And we really shouldn't expect anything less amazing because Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no one greater than him. There's no one more powerful. And that's to show us this. Don't go with Babylon. Trust Christ. And trust Him alone. Because not only will He come and conquer them who oppose Him, but He comes with people. Look at the end of verse 14. It says He comes with those who are called, chosen, faithful by God's grace. So this picture is set before us so that each one of us will desire to be with Christ and not with those who oppose Him. We look at this and see the beast is going to be defeated. 
The beast is going to be defeated. Don't go that way. Yet John tells us more than about the beast. We want to know about, what about the woman? What about Babylon? Well, that's the last paragraph of this chapter, verses 15 through 18. The beast will be defeated, and lastly, Babylon will fall. She'll fall from a high and lofty place. Look at verse 15. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the harlot seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So Babylon sits with authority over people around the globe. That's huge influence. Far greater than our presidents of other systems that have places in different countries around the globe. This person's influence is far greater. Babylon. It's global. But that's going to change. It's going to shift to the beast. Look at verse 16. And then the ten horns, remember those are ten kings, ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the harlot. There's the shift. At one point those kings were intoxicated by her. Now they hate her. They will make war on her, make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So Babylon is going to be ruined. Ruined. Now, are we supposed to think, well, Babylon comes, Babylon goes. That's kind of just how it goes with nations. One comes, one goes. No. The reason why Babylon falls is God. Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast. There's the shift. Until the words of God are fulfilled. So the fall of Babylon is God's working according to what he has said. You say, how did he do that? He did it by his power. Evil schemes. Evil joins together. It allies with other evils. It does so against him. But they're no match for Jesus Christ because he's going to destroy all who oppose him. Of course, we come to the end of this judgment and we might say, Pastor, can you tell me who is this harlot Babylon? Look at verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the harlot Babylon is a great city, and she will fall. You think about Babylon today, it's hardly on the map. Yet one day it will be a great power and center of opposition to God. Yet, even as it says it's Babylon is a city, which I really think there will be an end-time city, Babylon, There has to be an aspect of Babylon that's not just a physical location. In chapter 18, verse 4, the churches in the cities of Asia Minor are called to come out of Babylon. But Ephesus is not in Babylon. So how can you come out when you're not even there as far as location? So not only is Babylon a city, it's a system that encourages people to do what God hates, to be unfaithful to God, their maker. Say, what is God going to do with that? He's going to handle it. There's a lot of problems in the world, and we may hope maybe we'll get a Superman and he'll fix everything. You know what? God knows about the problems. God knows the greatest problem in the world is man's sin. That's why God sent a Savior. And one day God will send Christ to come and judge and remove all sin, remove all who oppose him. The good news is that He will judge Babylon. And when he does, it will be just. 
and it will be mighty because God is just and mighty. Father, as we consider you and what you will do, may we be amazed. There are so many times that we look at situations around us, at political systems and powers, and we think, there's nothing you can do to get around that. It's just impossible. So we often find ourselves lacking power. We realize that the true change that's needed is coming from Christ, and he has all the power necessary to accomplish his will and his word. So, Lord, help us to look at him and trust him because he is mighty. Father, I pray that you would do this for our sakes and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.